Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to ask you a question this morning. It's a question you have no doubt asked yourself at some point or another. It's simply this. What is love? Is it the love boat? Is it Andy Griffith? Raquel Welch? Maybe it's Dino, the Flintstones dog. Is it Elvis Presley or Ronnie Millsap or or Air Supply? What is love? I like the answers children sometimes give to this type of question. A man named Bruce Wolf compiled some responses children gave to various questions about love. And I want to share a few of these with you this morning. On why people fall in love, Andrew, age six, said one of the people has freckles and so he finds somebody else who has freckles too. May, age nine, no one is sure why it happens, but I heard it has something to do with how you smell. That's why perfume and deodorant are so popular. And Manuel, age eight, said, I think you're supposed to get shot with an arrow or something, but the rest of it isn't supposed to be so painful. On what falling in love is like, John, age nine, said, like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. Glenn, age seven, said, if falling in love is anything like learning how to spell, I don't want to do it. It takes too long. On the role of beauty and handsomeness in love, Christina, age nine, beauty is skin deep, but how rich you are can last a long time. Brian, age seven, said, it isn't always just how you look. Look at me. I'm handsome like anything, and I haven't got anybody to marry me yet. Confidential opinions about love. Floyd, age nine, said, love is foolish, but I still might try it sometime. And Regina, age 10, I'm not rushing into being in love. I'm finding fourth grade hard enough. Surefire ways to make a person fall in love with you. Camille, age nine, shake your hips and hope for the best. (laughs) Sorry, I'm picturing some of you doing that and it's just not, maybe not the best image there, I don't know. Alonzo, age nine, said, don't do things like have smelly green sneakers. You might get attention, but attention ain't the same thing as love. How to make love endure. Dick, age seven, spend most of your time loving instead of going to work. Dave, age eight, said, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. The personal qualities you need. Robbie, age eight, said, sensitivity don't hurt. Ava, age eight, says, one of you should know how to write a check because even if you have tons of love, there is still going to be a lot of bills. How does a person decide whom to marry? Callie, age nine. You flip a nickel and heads means you stay with him and tails means you try the next one. Carolyn, age eight, says, my mother says to look for a man who is kind. That's what I'll do. I'll find somebody who's kind, tall, and handsome. What is the proper age to get married? 
Bert, age five, once I'm done with kindergarten, I'm going to find me a wife. And the great debate, is it better to be single or married? Willie, age seven, it gives me a headache to think about that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. Well, these children's quotes are largely about romantic love, but the fact is love is important to every one of us. Not just romantic love, but everyday love. We all want to be loved and accepted, to know that we matter to one another, that someone else cares about us and likes us and actually wants us around. We all want to be loved. But the fact is, in order for this to happen, someone has to do the loving, don't they? This is especially important for us as Christians since we claim to know and love God to be in fellowship and relationship with Him. The Bible tells us that God is love and Jesus commanded His followers to love one another. In fact, right before He demonstrated His great love for us by dying on the cross, He said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And 1 John 4, 19 to 21 says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love God his brother and sister. So as Christians, our love for one another is in a sense proof of our love for God. So the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is, how are we doing? How are you doing? How are we doing collectively as a church? This morning we're going to look again at 1 Corinthians 13 and we're going to focus this morning on the the second stanza of this great hymn, Verses 4 through 7. Remember that this chapter is, is right in the middle of a section on interpersonal relationships and spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. Paul was writing to a gifted but divided church. A church where some individuals apparently viewed themselves and their gifts as superior to others. And Paul says, No, to each the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Your community, he says, a family of faith. You need each other, and no one of you is more important than another. And here in chapter 13, he's teaching them the most excellent way, the way of love. Two weeks ago, we talked about the critical importance of love, the fact that love is what makes our gifts profitable. Without love, our words are careless, our wisdom is worthless, And our sacrifices are useless. These four verses tell us what love looks like, how it should demonstrate itself in our day-to-day interactions with each other. Dennis Kinlaw says, It is in the friction that comes through our contacts with others that we find out who we really are. The Spirit's perfecting power is at work the most when I am in close association with other people. So again, as we look at these verses this morning, let's ask ourselves individually, 
Do these qualities mark my life? Do these verses describe me as a person? And let's ask ourselves collectively, is our church marked by these qualities? Do these verses describe our community of faith here at Houghton Wesleyan? I want to look at each of these verses in turn, each verse as a whole unit. And in the process, I simply want to set forth four principles about love to guide us in our relationships, four characteristics of love that make our relationships beautiful. The first principle we see is is found right there in verse 4, and it is simply this. Love acts and reacts out of humility. Look with me at verse 4. It says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. In this life, there will always be those people who frustrate us and irritate us. In fact, there may even be some who who seem to make it a point to stand on our very last nerve. There will always be critics and detractors, those who would challenge our expressions of hope and faith and love. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, we discover that love acts and reacts out of humility. Abraham Lincoln was considered one of the greatest presidents our country has ever had, and yet he endured much criticism and ridicule from lots of people. One such person, one who criticized him the most, was Edwin Stanton. Edwin Stanton's dislike for Lincoln was no secret. He treated Lincoln with total contempt. He called him a low, cunning clown, and he even nicknamed him the original gorilla. How did Lincoln respond? He said nothing. Instead, he made Edwin Stanton his war minister because Stanton was, in fact, the best man for the job. And he treated Stanton with every courtesy and respect. And finally, when Lincoln was assassinated several years later, Stanton stood there in that little room where the president's body had been taken and looking down on Lincoln's face, he said through his tears, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. Love acts and reacts out of humility. How do we respond in the face of criticism? How do we react toward those who are mean or rude to us? Love is patient. Love is kind. It acts and reacts out of humility. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Ever heard of the book Sentimental Tommy? In it, Tommy came home from school one day and was talking with his mother about how school was going and how great he was doing and what good grades he was getting. And, and, uh, and he concluded his litany of academic achievements by saying, Mother, am I not a wonder? Well, you may be a wonder. But you probably don't want to spend too much time on that. No, it's better to be like that little old lady named Mother Teresa, whose ministry reached around the world. But when she received the Nobel Peace Prize for her work among the sick, poor, and outcast in India, she simply stated, I am unworthy to receive it. 
Love acts and reacts out of humility. It says, I don't have to brag or boast. I don't need to prove myself. I think we sometimes have a tendency to go to one extreme or the other with this matter of pride. Some tend to call attention to themselves by boasting or bragging, parading their achievements and their accomplishments in front of everyone uh, for recognition. Others tend to call attention to themselves by putting themselves down, by focusing on their flaws, always beating themselves up because they're not perfect. If we have a need to do those things, it may reveal something in our personalities that the Holy Spirit needs to address. But love acts and reacts in humility with an honest assessment of who we are before God and others. Love says, God made me like he made me, and he likes me as I am. I don't have to inflate myself to look good. Neither do I have to downplay my contributions and false humility because God made me unique. He gave me my IQ. He gave me my gifts. And I have been created and designed for his good pleasure. See, when I know that I'm loved and accepted as I am by God, I'm free to be myself. I don't need the approval and acceptance of others to be content. The great missionary William Carey was said to be one of the greatest linguists the world has ever seen. He translated various parts of the Bible into no fewer than 34 languages. But he didn't begin as a linguist. He started out as a simple cobbler. And when he went to India, in some circles he was regarded with dislike and contempt. Once at a dinner party, a man was there and thinking that he would put Carey in his place and humiliate him, He said in a loud voice, uh, loud enough for everyone else to hear, I suppose, Mr. Carey, you once worked as a shoemaker. Carey's response is interesting. He said, no, your lordship, not a shoemaker, only a cobbler. He didn't even claim to make shoes, only to mend them. Someone has said we should have no pride of race, no pride of place, no pride of face, only pride of grace. And this is confirmed by the Apostle Paul who said, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Love acts and reacts out of humility. The second principle is taken from verse 5. It is simply this. Love overlooks both wrongs and rights. Look with me at verse 5. Speaking of love, Paul says, It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. See, love, when it infuses our being and overflows in our lives, it gives us the strength to overlook both wrongs and our rights. It is foreign to the nature of love to seek my rights. And to also hang on to wrongs committed against me. When we're mistreated or, or when our rights have been violated, our human nature wants to lash back and defend ourselves and our rights to avenge the wrong that's been done to us. But this verse states emphatically that, that love is both opposed to seeking my rights, you see the self-seeking there, and to avenging wrongs. The word payback doesn't exist in love's vocabulary. 
It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And we would do well to leave the avenging and repayment of wrongs in his hands. Someone has said self-preservation is the first law of nature. Self-sacrifice is the highest rule of grace. Love doesn't keep a scorecard. It rises above any kind of tallying of, of wrongs or rights, and it forgives. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love overlooks both wrongs and rights. How are we doing this morning? The third principle is right there in verse 6. Love emphasizes the truth, especially the good truth. Verse 6 says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. You have to take the whole verse together there. Don't take it apart. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. There are many things that you and I know that if we shared them with others, we would humiliate someone. But according to this verse, love says, no, I want to protect other people's dignity. I don't want to proclaim the things that humiliate and destroy. Instead, I want to expose and promote those things that build people up and make them better. Those are the things that I want to emphasize. Lewis Smedes, in his book, Mere Morality, states this principle clearly. Listen to what he says. The commandment tells us to speak truthfully whenever it is appropriate for us to speak at all. Respect for truthfulness does not compel us to reveal our minds to everyone on every occasion. The ninth commandment assumes, no doubt, a situation that calls on us to speak. It does not ask us to tell the people at the next table in a restaurant that their manners are repulsive. It does not obligate a nurse to contradict a physician at a sick person's bedside. Nor does it require me to divulge all of my feelings to a stranger on a bus. We are called to speak the truth in any situation in which we have a responsibility to communicate. Further, the command requires only a revelation that is pertinent to the situation. A politician ought to speak the truth about public matters as he sees them. He does not need to tell us how he feels about his wife. A doctor ought to tell me the truth as he understands it about my health. He does not need to tell me his views on universal health insurance. The commandment does not call us to be blabbermouths. Truthfulness is demanded from us about the things that we ought to speak about at all. Love emphasizes the truth, especially the good truth. No doubt there are many of us here who have things in our past that that are true, but that we just as soon not have the rest of the congregation know about. One night in a church service, a young woman felt the tug of God on her heart, and she responded to God's call and accepted Christ as her Savior and Lord. The young woman had a rough past involving drugs and, and uh, alcohol and, and prostitution even. But the change in her by God's grace was evident. As time went on, she became a faithful member of the church. And she eventually became involved in ministry, teaching children. 
It wasn't long until this young woman caught the eye of the pastor's son. And the relationship grew and, and they fell in love and they began to make wedding plans. And, and it was just about that time that the problems began. You see, about half the church didn't think that a woman with a past like hers was suitable for the pastor's son. So the church began to argue and fight about the matter and, and they decided to have a meeting. Well, in this meeting, as the people made their arguments and as tensions increased, the meeting was beginning to get out of hand and the young woman became very upset about all the things that were being brought up about her past. And as she began to cry, the pastor's son couldn't bear the pain it was causing his wife to be. He stood up and he addressed the church. And he said, my fiance's past is not what is on trial here. What you are questioning is the ability of the blood of Jesus to wash away sin. Today, you have put the blood of Jesus on trial. So, does it wash away sin or not? And the story goes that the whole church began to weep as they realized that they had been slandering the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if we really stopped to examine our own lives if we would discover that we too have on occasion been guilty of slandering the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. How often is gossip on our lips? How often are we cynical and skeptical about our fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ? How often do we judge and question their characters, looking for flaws and weaknesses? A sad reality in our world today is that often... Those who are accused of wrongdoing are charged, tried, and found guilty in public opinion before they ever have a hearing, convicted on hearsay alone without any real knowledge of the facts. Instead of innocent until proven guilty, they're presumed guilty unless proven innocent. I pray that that's not the case within the church. Our job as the body of Christ is to love sinners and point them to Christ, and leave the role of, of judge to God and to those in the appropriate positions of authority. In no way is this a call to ignore sin. We have a responsibility to deal with sin. But let's be very careful not to condemn our brothers and sisters in Christ or other individuals for whom Christ died, remembering that we too, every one of us, are sinners without hope, except by the blood of Christ. We would do well to remember that love emphasizes the truth, especially the good truth. John Maxwell identifies three kinds of people when it comes to this matter of truth. The first kind are the hiders. These people don't speak the truth. They can't stand confrontation. They say what you want to hear in order to avoid conflict and keep the peace. These people wouldn't wake you up if your house was burning down because they're afraid you'd be angry with them for disturbing their sleep. The second kind are hurlers. These people speak the truth, but it's not in love. They throw, the, they throw grenades. They know the truth and they're going to hurt you with it. And the third kind are healers. These people speak the truth in love. They tell it like it is, emphasizing the good truth, and if confrontation is necessary, they ever so gently and lovingly 
reveal the hard truth, the difficult truth, and then only for purposes of healing, reconciliation, and the good of the one with whom they're dealing. They speak the truth in love, emphasizing the good truth. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. You and I want to be sure to be in that last category, healers. We want to be people who encourage and build others up in the truth, not using it to tear down and destroy others. Let's make it our normal daily practice to emphasize the truth, especially the good truth. The fourth principle is found in verse 7, taken all together once again. Love supremely values other people. Love supremely values other people. Verse 7 says, It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The Revised Standard Version says, It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Why would I want to bear all things or endure all things? I'll tell you why. Because I want to be someone who values other people the way God values other people and the way God values me. As C.S. Lewis said, he loved us not because we were lovable, but because he is love. You see, God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things with you and me. He values us supremely. And I, for one, want to be someone who values others like God values me. Adam Clark was a master Bible scholar and author of a number of commentaries. And in one of those commentaries, he tells the story of a time when when he was a young student in school and a visiting lecturer came to, to address his class. During the visiting speaker's address, Adam Clark, like any typical kid may have done, caused a bit of a commotion and the teacher, uh, his teacher yelled at him. He said, be quiet, Adam. You're a dumb kid. Be quiet. And then the teacher turned to the visiting lecturer and said, that's the dumbest boy in school. The teacher's words hurt Adam Clark deeply, as you can imagine. But at the end of the lecture that day, the, that visiting speaker came by his desk and said, never mind, my, my boy. You may yet be a great scholar someday. Don't be discouraged, but try hard and keep on trying. And Adam Clark, in his own sharing about this incident, believes that in some way his six Bible commentaries resulted from a visiting speaker who walked by one day and said essentially, I see you for who you are. You're a rabble-rousing young kid, and I know that. But someday, if I can remain faithful to you as a person to value you, you may grow up to make some contribution. He believed in Adam Clark. He valued him. And in fact, Adam Clark did grow up to become a scholar and make an enormous contribution to biblical scholarship. One writer put it this way, to love anyone is to hope in him always. From the moment at which we begin to judge anyone, 
to limit our confidence in him from that moment at which we identify him, label him, and so reduce him to that label, we cease to love him and he ceases to be able to become better. We must dare to love in a world that does not know how to love. Love supremely values other people. Four points. Love acts and reacts out of humility. Love overlooks both wrongs and rights. Love emphasizes the truth, especially the good truth. And love supremely values other people. How are we doing today? God made us for relationship with himself and with each other. If we are going to be Christ-like, if we're going to be holy as God calls his people to be, it's going to be reflected in our relationships and how we treat one another. John Wesley said there is no social there is no holiness but social holiness. And so again, the question for us this morning is how are we doing? If others were rating you on a scale of 1 to 10 based on these verses and these principles, where would you score? One of the best ways to measure how we're doing with this matter of love is to insert our own name in the passage where the word love or it appears and see if it rings true. A simple definition of holiness is Christ-likeness, and it certainly rings true that if you put Jesus' name in there, Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind, Jesus doesn't envy, Jesus doesn't boast, Jesus isn't proud. That certainly rings true. Are we able to substitute our names? And if you can honestly substitute your name for Jesus' name and it rings true, thank God for his work in your life. Remember, love rejoices with the truth, especially the good truth. If it doesn't ring true, don't be discouraged. Keep trying. Be proactive with love, with God's love. Keep asking the Holy Spirit to help you. Ask him to identify and change in you those characteristics that aren't consistent with God's love. If you do so and keep on doing so, someday you'll wake up to find that, yes, in fact, I can insert my name there. And generally speaking, it does ring true. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Regardless of where we are in our journey toward love and Christ-likeness today, all of us, can pray the words of the second verse to that wonderful Thomas Chisholm hymn that goes like this. Oh, to be like thee, full of compassion, loving, forgiving, tender and kind, helping the helpless, cheering the fainting, seeking the wandering sinner to find. Oh, to be like thee, oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art, come in thy sweetness, Come in thy fullness, stamp thine own image deep on my heart. Let's pray together. 
Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would, in fact, stamp your own image deep on our hearts. Fill us with your love and love others through us. We pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us, we would be able to insert our own name into the passage. Lord, we understand and we know that we don't have the strength and the power to love on our own. It is a work of grace. And yet that's what you call us to. And when you call us to something, you provide the means to enable it to become reality in our lives. And so we thank you that you are the one who loves us deeply and values us deeply. And we pray that you would enable us to love one another and to love others as you have loved us. And we'll give you all the thanks and the praise and the glory as we become more and more like Christ each day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.